welcome to episode 1559 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast with Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. This is the second episode in our week of episodes devoted to the Negro Leagues. So on our previous episode, we talked to Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Today, we have two guests. So first, we will talk to Jeremy Beer, who wrote a great biography of Oscar Charleston last year and basically a a bunch of people have made the case that Oscar Charleston is the best Negro Leagues player, maybe the best or one of the very best baseball players of all time, and he is probably not properly appreciated. So we will talk to Jeremy about why that is and why he was so great in his life and career, and just generally the difficulty of writing a biography about a Negro Leagues player, about whom less is known than one would want. And then after that, we will be talking to Dr. Emily Rudder, who is a professor who has written a lot and is an expert on representations of black baseball. We'll be talking specifically about a couple of movies about the Negro Leagues, Soul of the Game from 1996 and the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings from 1976. So we'll talk a bit about those movies specifically and then about the context and why there aren't more movies and just works in general about black baseball. Both great conversations that we enjoyed and we will get to them in just a moment before we do i just want to make a recommendation which i have already made to you offline but we'll make in longer form here and make to all the listeners i'm hooked on a new baseball show and it's called stove league and it is a korean baseball drama or dramedy and i saw jj cooper from baseball america tweet about it the other day and i thought boy this looks really good And I gave it a shot, and Jesse and I have gotten totally hooked. I'll just give you the full rundown here. The show aired from last December to this February, and it's been a hit in South Korea. It's critically acclaimed. In June, it won Best Drama at the Beksang Arts Awards, which, as I understand it, is kind of like the Korean Oscars and Emmys rolled into one. So there's been one season so far. There are 16 hour-long episodes. It's pretty meaty. And we are five episodes in right now, and we are just totally hooked on it and I can't recommend it more highly to anyone who is starved for baseball content and I think listeners of the show would really appreciate it and just the the quick summary it's about this team in the Korean Baseball League it's I guess it's not explicitly the KBO but it's the KBO it's fictionalized teams but that's what it is it's the Korean Major Leagues and it's actually shot at the home park of the KBO's SK Wyverns it's this perennial basement dweller a a team called the Dream and they're in 10th place year in and year out and they have kind of been poorly run and suddenly they get a new general manager and they're running things in a a different way and really the protagonist is the woman who is the team leader Uh, she's sort of like the director of baseball operations I, I guess you could say would be the MLB equivalent she's the first woman in this position for a Korean team and it's sort of presented from her viewpoint to an extent although it focuses on a lot of characters too and so it's about her it's about this GM who comes over from team handball he's won championships in a bunch of other sports and he doesn't know that much about baseball but he is just iconoclast and he sees things clearly and he doesn't care what anyone thinks and he's gonna turn this team around and they're just great storylines about scouting sabermetrics plays a 
very prominent part in this story and there are all sorts of mentions of war and WPA and they go through a round of interviews for a sabermetric analyst and they have like famous sabermetric bloggers not real ones but kind of like real ones on the show so for Fangraph's people there's just a, a lot to like here and it just sort of fills that void that Pitch left and that another show I've recommended Goretzeni or, or Money Pitch a, a Japanese anime baseball show it's sort of a blend of both of those where it's this kind of heartwarming drama where you really like all these characters and it's kind of funny but it's also very inside baseball and it presents all these aspects of running a baseball team that you don't typically see say in a baseball movie maybe in a way that might be almost off-putting to kind of casual mainstream fans but for our listeners I think they would really eat it up so again Stove Week go check it out you will love it if you're looking for something to watch over this long weekend if you have one stove league is what you want to check out i mean this sounds like we're going to need to do an episode where we grapple with yeah Yeah. with the the accuracy of how sabermetrics are portrayed but yeah i'm so thrilled to have a a baseball show yeah you know we we have lamented the loss of pitch many a time Mm -hmm. on this program think we still feel its absence keenly um, yes. even though it is thankfully now available on hulu for those who want to uh, mm-hmm. engage with it for the first time but yes we good baseball media and representations of baseball of all kinds are kind of hard to come by i think it'll be yeah. a recurring theme of our episode today so <laughs> i'm excited to to get to dig in on a new one and one that um, centers a different league than mlb which is so often the focus so i'm yeah. very excited for your recommendation ben yeah it's uh right it's it's close enough to what we know that it's not like you'll feel out of your depth or anything but it's also different enough things don't work quite the same way there that you'll be kind of curious about some of the differences and also some of the parallels and you get some screenshots of spray charts and (laughs) just like internal team systems and oh it's just great and it's like it jumps around so it'll focus on players sometimes or scouts or data analysts or the people's lives away from the ballpark and then also how they're trying to turn around this team it's the best and for anyone who wants to know how to watch it that is an important question too so it's available on a couple of asian streaming services so one of them is called Kokoa or Kokawa. I will link to that and, and you can find it there. But I am watching it on another streaming service called Viki, V-I-K-I. And the first two episodes are available for free there. So you can watch without even registering or anything. And then if you like them, which you will, you can then sign up for a free trial and potentially even watch the whole thing just for free if you binge it quickly. <laughs> but there are English subtitles I will link to where you can find it and yeah maybe when you watch it i will just say when not if i will yes. just yeah. presume that you will be checking this out no, at some fair. point maybe we can have a longer conversation about it and once our listeners have had some time to check it out too but yes i i give it thus far through a, about a third of the season I, I give it my highest recommendation for fellow baseball geeks I'm very excited about this because I don't know if you saw this earlier this week. I don't know that you would have occasion to follow 
Hulu's Twitter account? Because why Why would you do that, Ben? No, I, I don't. Yeah, why would you do that? I don't either. But I saw this retweeted into my timeline that they, you know, to try to get folks to watch Pitch had a had a little promo that was clearly recently filmed between Kylie Bunbury as as Ginny and uh, Mark Paul Gossler as Mike, which uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know was very exciting. It suggested <laughs> a continuing pitch universe that is yeah. just out of view. Uh, but it was you know like a twenty second promo to watch a series I've already seen, and right. so uh, as exciting as that brief taste was i i am in the market for for new baseball tv so i will i will definitely uh engage with it soon excellent all right then we will get to our first interview we are joined now by jeremy beer he is the author of the book oscar charleston the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player which was published last year by the great university of nebraska press whose virtues i have extolled before and it has been very well received it won the 2019 casey award and the 2020 saber seymour medal you can take my word for it if you if you don't know about baseball book awards but very prestigious so congratulations on the success Jeremy, and thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I was looking at Joe Posnanski's recent Baseball 100, his ranking of the top 100 baseball players in history, and he has Oscar Charleston at number five between Hank Aaron and Ted Williams. And he's not the first to get that aggressive with an Oscar Charleston ranking. Bill James in his new historical abstract had him at number four. But looking at the other players on Joe's list who spent all or much of their careers in the Negro Leagues, you have Cool Papa Bell, Monty Irvin, Smokey Joe Williams, Buck Leonard, Pop Lloyd, Josh Gibson, Satchel Page. Most of those players, I think, probably have greater name recognition with the average baseball fan than Oscar Charleston. And even though his contemporaries all seem to say that he was the best or certainly one of the best, and Buck O'Neill famously said that he was Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Tris Speaker rolled into one and that he was the best player he'd ever seen, he was still only the seventh Negro Leaguer inducted into the Hall of Fame. And as you noted, greatest forgotten player, which I assume must be exciting in a way for a biographer because you're hoping that he won't be forgotten when people read the book and that you can bring him to greater attention. But it also must be somewhat daunting because there must be reasons why someone has not received the recognition that he deserves. And that is probably something you encountered as you were working on this. So what drew you to Oscar Charleston and what were the challenges of bringing his memory to light? Yeah. I did not know about him until I encountered Bill James's ranking of him as the fourth mm-hmm. greatest player of all time. And so that was the first thing that drew me to him, just wanting to know more about, you know, I, I had thought of myself as a fairly serious baseball fan. And uh, how could I not know who the fourth greatest player of all time is? I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you can't even imagine that. And it wouldn't seem, say, in football. So when I started looking into him, I realized he was from Indiana. That's one of the first things I found out. And I'm from Indiana, which made me even more ticked off because you know my friends and I would sit around I'm sure like you guys do and say hey who are the greatest players of all time from Indiana pick a sport you know that was the thing we would do we were nerdy nerdy kids who like sports and never his name never came up so you know to know that they uh, not only the fourth greatest player of all time or somebody in that inner inner circle had been forgotten but also a fellow Hoosier was what drove me to want to um, to look into his life and um, yeah see what I could find and you're right, it was daunting, but there was more. I was, you know, Joe Posnanski in his great article on Charleston talks about how much we can't know 
ever about Charleston, but it, I was actually more impressed by how much I was able to find. I, I was <laughs> 400 pages worth. <laughs> yes, much to my uh, editor's delight, I'm sure. <laughs> so can you take us through your research process and how you started to arrive at some of some of the many facts and anecdotes that populate those 400 words? <laughs> 400 pages. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> 400 words per page. Yeah, you know, I, I started out with I wasn't going to trust any secondary source if I could possibly help it because what was clear, uh, if you just, you know, still today, if you Google around online about uh, Oscar Charleston, you can tell that a, a game of telephone has been played, you know, that somebody said something and it gets a little bit distorted and somebody kind of repeats it. And, you know, by the time you get to the seventh person repeating it, you have something that's clearly, you know, garbled. So that was, uh, something I wanted to overcome. And, and I also just wanted to treat him seriously as a historical figure. Uh, it seemed, and this happens with players from the past, maybe more with Negro Leagues players, they become symbols more than they become men. And I wanted to treat him seriously as a, as a man and as a historical figure, not accept any, anything that wasn't well attested or as well attested as possible. So uh, that was sort of the guiding principle. And then it just, it was the right, in, in some ways it was exactly the wrong time to undertake such a project. In other ways, it was a really good time. It was a totally terrible time in the sense that like everybody who knew Oscar, at least who played with him or for him, except for six, seven, eight people, at least that I could find, is gone, right? I mean, I started the project too late. They're, they've passed away. I was able to talk to a few people uh, who knew him uh, at the end of his career and played for him for the Philadelphia Stars or Indianapolis Clowns, but that was about it. So that, that was somewhat discouraging. But the good news is there are a lot of oral interviews that are either available in audio format or print format from people who, who talked a lot about Charleston or asked a lot of questions about him. So that helped there. On the other side, it was really good because everything's been digitized. It would have been very, very hard to write a biography like this 10, 15, 20 years ago because you would, you would have had to select like the four or five newspapers that you were going to spend your life going through the microfiche on, right? and figure out what happened on a daily basis. Easy to search now. Every newspaper, not quite every newspaper in the land, but a really high percentage of them. And so just going, just doing the sort of digitized searching you can do now, going through old newspapers, you're able to piece together, um, you know, a fair, a fairly good amount of the story. It, the interior life was harder to get to, but the exterior life, you could get to a pretty good chunk of it. So before we get into the specifics, can you just give us a quick summary of his life and career and sort of the elevator pitch for yeah. why he is arguably <laughs> the, the best Negro Leagues player ever? And not only that, I would say it's, it's possible that he has the most impressive resume in baseball ever compiled by anyone mm -hmm. of any race. That's, that's my one sentence. And that's the lead sentence of the elevator pitch. Yeah, he has. He <laughs> I'm <was> listening. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. so start as a player, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he had a very long career, super durable. He was a five-tool player, uh, as people who have read Joe Posnanski's piece in the Athletic uh, will know. He could hit for power. He could, he could hit for average. Uh, he was a great base runner, stole a lot of bases, and was a great defender. I mean, really transformed how center field was played, at least in the black game. So he got that part of his career. And I can get into the statistics later that, uh, that might sort of go to uh, proving that point. Then he was uh, he had a great career in Cuba, uh, and he became a legend in Cuba, the best known player, best known American player in Cuban baseball in the 1920s, and a legend there, played for legendary teams. So you have that side of what he did. 
then he goes on to be a great manager, a very successful manager, you know, uh, with the Pittsburgh Crawfords in particular, but earlier with the Harrisburg Giants, uh, and wins several championships as a manager and manages that famous Pittsburgh Crawfords team with Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. And anybody who had to manage Satchel Paige has earned his stripes. Then he goes on to be a pioneering scout, probably the first African-American to be paid to scout for a National League or American League team. Probably broke the scouting color line. He's never gotten credit for that, but he scouted for Branch Rickey in 1945. And we know he played a major role in the signing of Roy Campanella by the Dodgers, probably among others. So that's my elevator pitch. You put all that together, player, manager, scout, player in different leagues, universally attested by uh, both the black and white observers in terms of his greatness. That's hard to beat. I don't know who else can, you know, it's, it's a pretty good combo. And take us through a bit of that statistical record and sort of the scouting report for him, because I think that often, like you said, Negro League players can be, you know, the the specifics of their career can be forgotten sometimes because they're held up as icons, sometimes because of the limitations in the statistical record that we have. So take us through some of Charleston's sort of career highlights. Yeah, this was something I didn't know until I started working on this project. But the statistics we have now on the Negro Leagues are far better than we've ever had at any moment in time, including when the leagues were happening themselves. I mean, they're so much better. Uh, Thanks to this army of researchers who have painstakingly gone through all these old newspapers and and gotten box scores out of them and game accounts and redone all all the statistics from as many games as we can find. So, uh, you know, Larry Lester, who's sort of a dean of Negro Leagues researchers and historians, Yes, I've heard we're hoping say. to have him on this week. You as should well. have Larry yes. on. He's yes. great. <laughs> so you can ask him, you can confirm this with him, but I think I've heard him say that he thinks we have about 70% of the box scores between major Negro Leagues teams during during their heyday, anyway. So we have a fairly robust sample size. It's not, you know, you'll see repeated, like uh, Jane Levy in her wonderful biography of Babe Ruth that came out just a year or two ago, just casually says something along the way that, you know, we don't have good Negro League statistics. And he, you hear that repeated, but that's not true anymore. Uh, they're at seamheads.com. That's a, you know, and it's great to be talking to Fangrass. We can like dive into the stats. Okay, <laughs> yes, Seamhead, you'll, you'll want to know. <laughs> yes. Go, <laughs> go to seamheads.com. And it's, that's where the best Negro League statistics are housed, thanks to a man named Gary Ashwell. And um, it, they're not bad. <laughs> you know, they're, they're actually not bad. And they're certainly not as good as we have for the white National League, American League at the time, but, but they're very good. So starting there, okay. Do your baseball reference search, okay, on the play index. Who had a career average of 300 or more or higher? Uh, homers of 300 or more, stolen bases of 300 or more, and a defensive war of greater than zero? So the answer is nobody. Okay, take out the defensive war requirement. The answer is still nobody. That 300, 300, 300 club, nobody has hit it. Bonds, Barry Bonds came closest. He's a 298 career batting average. Okay, Charleston, I, I, I am completely convinced. All the, all the evidence suggests he would have easily hit all those marks. He hit 350 in Negro Leagues play, 191 home runs, and 300 stolen bases in fewer than half the plate appearances that Willie Mays compiled in his career. So if you just crudely, I know it doesn't work this way, but double those sorts of numbers to sort of start to get some sense of where we should start, you know, in evaluating him. And you're probably looking at a guy, he's like, again, that Maybe he doesn't hit 350 in the in the uh, in an integrated major league. Maybe it's 320 or 330, but he's clearly over 300 home runs and almost certainly over 500 stolen bases, 
And so that's sort of the statistical basis of where the kind of career you're looking at. He's, he's first all-time in the Negro Leagues play, part of the Seamheads database, and in all the counting stats, except for home runs, basically. Uh, uh, runs, hits, doubles, triples, RBI, stolen bases, and walks. He's third in home runs. He's first in career war in Negro Leagues play. He's got the fifth highest career OPS plus, third highest career batting average. That gives you some sense. Uh, there, just one, there was an 11-year span, his peak, 1918 through 1928, where he had a, an OPS plus of 200 or higher five times, never lower than 165. During that time, he's also universally regarded as the best defender in the league and one of its best base runners. I tell he, he's Mike Trout. He, he's a left-handed Mike Trout from 100 years ago. Yeah. That's basically who Oscar Charleston was. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive resume. And uh, I want to give a shout out also to Dan Hirsch, friend of the show, who often helps us with our statistical requests. He's also played a big part in the Seamheads Negro Leagues database. So he has helped present those stats too. So it's not just the stats, obviously. If all we had was the stats, maybe you could be sort of skeptical. But we also have the testimony of people who played with him and saw him play. And is it a universal sentiment that he was the best, or does it vary a little bit? How much sure. of a range is there in terms of what people said about him? Because you have memory is somewhat fallible, and, and of course, right. people's personal evaluations of players are somewhat fallible at times, especially in earlier eras. But when someone like Buck O'Neill, who saw as much baseball as he did, said that he was the best ever, who else kind of joined the list of, of people Leaving him. Right. So it's not universal. Uh, I mean, nothing's universal, right? But mm-hmm. is, that, is that adjective all around, the best all around player in Negro mm-hmm. Leagues history that usually got everybody saying his name? Uh, otherwise, you might get Josh Gibson nominated by people, and rightly so. I mean, I'm not sure who I would pick between those two as the greatest player in Negro Leagues history. Mm-hmm. Gibson was just so, his bat was just tremendous. But if you're really, if you're really valuing the defensive and base running part of this equation. It's not universal, but it's, he's by far the most often nominated by both black and white observers. So besides Buck O'Neill, you have people like um, uh, Honus Wagner, who said uh, he'd been around all the great players in the game over the years. He'd never seen anyone greater than Charleston. There's a scout named uh, Benny Borgman, uh, who's actually in the NBA, or, or in the Basketball Hall of Fame, I should say. And he was a scout for the Cardinals at some point. And he said, you know, he'd, he'd seen Ruth, Cobb, Gehrig, all of them. And the greatest he'd ever seen was Oscar Charleston. Uh, Borgman was obviously white. Hollis Thurston, who was a white uh, pitcher, uh, said he'd seen Babe Ruth and Fox and all of them. Charleston was the greatest hitter he'd ever seen. Happy Chandler, former commissioner of baseball, said that Cobb and Charleston were the greatest players he'd ever seen. There's one more. I'll just run, and as I'm sort of just name checking here, that's worth mentioning. Tom Baird, who was a co owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, a white co owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, and a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and didn't let that keep him from saying that Charleston was the greatest <laughs> player he'd ever seen. So, you know, even for an out and out total racist, we know, you know, <laughs> Charleston was able to persuade him. So it's pretty, I was really impressed in doing the research just how many people volunteered that sort of statement to the press. And it's both, as I say, it's, it's, it's not just uh, uh, white players, but African-American players and club owners as well. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. 
So given that remarkable resume and the sterling endorsements that he received, help us to understand how how it has taken so long for his story to sort of start to gain the prominence within our understanding of black baseball history and the Negro Leagues in particular that it's starting to occupy now. Because I think one of the things I was struck by in reading the introduction to your book is that it isn't simply a matter of white baseball fans, contemporary baseball fans being unaware of him. There is a, there's sort of a contemporaneous or near contemporaneous to his life forgetting that begins and he does not receive his due. Um, as Ben mentioned, he was the seventh uh, Negro Leagues player to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So can you help us to understand sort of how that forgetting or yeah. sort of erasure from the historical record started and then what arrested it? Yeah, yeah, I'll try, and then maybe you can help me understand it uh, as well. <laughs> so he dies young. He dies at an inopportune time. He dies in 1954, and he leaves no descendants, and he's estranged from his wife. So he didn't have anybody to tend his flame. That's number one. And number two, uh, he he wasn't still around when historians started getting around to telling the story of of African-American baseball. And that doesn't really happen until the 70s and really doesn't pick up steam until the 80s. And he's gone. Uh, cool Papa Bell's still around. Uh, Buck Leonard's still around. Monty Irvin is still around. And I don't think it's any accident that those guys get into the Hall of Fame before Oscar does. And maybe not for entirely bad reasons. You want to induct people while they're still alive, I think, if you can. So, But he just wasn't around to tell his own story and nobody else was around to really contend for his story. So that's part of it. But as you say, he was already starting to sort of be forgotten at the, near the end of his life. And that sort of twilight period for the Negro Leagues uh, that started in 1947, the moment Jackie Robinson stepped onto the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Negro Leagues were, were decimated almost immediately. Uh, the fans left them in droves and teams, obviously, who, unlike now, really counted on fans for, for revenue and to keep going, were, were, were decimated. So he's in that twilight time, he, he starts to lose you know, sort of a lot of recognition. And it, in part because it wasn't a time, that time and for another 10, 15, 20 years after uh, integration, if not longer, it just wasn't, um, no one was highly invested in, in talking about or thinking about the Negro Leagues. It was sort of too painful, I think. At least that's my interpretation for both blacks and whites. And so there just wasn't anybody doing that kind of, that kind of work. And by the time you get back to it, as I said, he had some some things going against him. Uh, the other another thing I'll mention is Indianapolis, his home city, never claimed him. I, I have a hard time figuring that one out. Uh, he grew up there. He, um, you know, made his career there for at least the first part of it. And in and, and you know, Indianapolis has not always been you know great from a racial relations perspective to say the least. But it hasn't kept the city from claiming like Oscar Robertson, the big O, who grew up in the same neighborhood as Charleston a generation later. So I don't know, but that's part of it. I think it's all those things together. But when you think about it, there's, yes, you mentioned Ben, like Cool Papa Bell has more name recognition, maybe Monty Irvin does or Buck Leonard, but not that much more. You know, mostly it seems like we only had, have made room for two or three, you know, Negro Leagues players in our collective memories. And that's, we're sort of like just leaving it at that. But uh, you know, Oscar stands in for a lot of other guys who've also been unjustly neglected and forgotten, who were also studs and fantastic players like Turkey Stearns and Cristobal Torriente and Willard Brown and go down the list. So 
he's just one of many, I think, who've been that's one way to look at it is that he's just one of many who've been unjustly forgotten. Yeah. If I were his PR person, I'd say he needs a nickname. I know <laughs> he he has <laughs> Hoosier Comet, I guess, yeah, he was sometimes of. called, but that's not even really that associated with him, and it's not even the best Comet nickname in baseball. <laughs> you can't compete with Commerce Comet and the, the alliteration that you get there. So he yeah. needs like a, a cool Papa or a, mm-hmm. a double duty Radcliffe or something. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need. You should have invented a, a nickname for him, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I'm not maybe I'm not a good PR guy for him. <laughs> you know, it tells you something about his personality that he did not yeah. He was one of the guys who didn't have a nickname. He was taken very seriously. I mean, he was, as I talked about in the book, he had a, he had, his personality wasn't what you might think. Yeah. You just read about him online. But, uh, That's what I was going to say. Or even just thinking about how he's sort of underappreciated, you might think, oh, well, maybe he was uh, an unpleasant person or he wasn't well-liked or he was a recluse or something. But it sounds like he was very admired and, and respected and liked, which yeah. makes it even more surprising. It does. I mean, and that's coming right out of the newspapers of the time, uh, as well as out of some of the recollections you get from, from former players. Yeah, it's clear. I mean, he was the biggest gate attraction in black baseball. And he's always talked about his personality, how charismatic he was. He's a great singer, you know, great billiards player, stuff like that. Great dresser, very snappy dresser. So he was very charismatic and very and well liked by almost everyone. Now, not not everyone. He was very intense. I mean, he was a super intense competitor, and it's something we don't see as much anymore. Like I've been trying to think of somebody in contemporary baseball. Maybe you guys can help with this. Who's got a really intensely competitive personality on the field uh, maybe isn't very well liked on the field but then is, is uh but off the field is is well liked like chase utley kind of maybe the, the last guy i could think of i mean the sort of standard bearer for me for intensity on the field is is max scherzer yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's who comes immediately to mind who i think by all accounts is i think mostly well liked by his his teammates right. i don't hear many max scherzer dissenters um, <laughs> yeah that's good i like that i'll i'll take scherzer i mean harper to some extent bryce harper right also who set some people off in the wrong way and, and, <laughs> yes. and we'll get in a fight with some teammate from time to time you know that was gives you some sense of what charleston maybe was like on the field he was he wasn't cuddly right so maybe he wasn't the kind of guy that you that you gave a nickname to but he was he was very, very respected. Uh, he was just military. You know, he joined the army when he was a young man. That really left its mark on him. And so I think of him as, um, I, I, for some reason, I always think of like Mike Singletary when I think of Charleston too, as somebody that's sort of intellectual, tough. He's, I think of him as built like Mike Singletary, like a linebacker. So maybe it's, maybe it's Max Scherzer meets Mike Singletary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So what were some of the more fruitful sources for you just in terms of the the public record? And we can ask about who he was as a person, but just the newspapers that covered him the most or that covered black baseball the most or the writers who you found yourself relying on most often. The newspapers of record for the black game were the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender preeminently. Uh, There were others, uh, the New York Amsterdam News. And, and a handful of others around the country. But, but the Courier and the Defender were hugely important. And they, they covered the Negro Leagues well and, and, and pretty thoroughly. So those would be the most important sort of public sources. But then as, as I was kind of saying, it's really, if anybody, uh, if you're a baseball fan and you haven't like, you know, pick up 
a used copy of, of these books by John Hallway, H-O-L-W-A-Y, or uh, Brent Kelly is another. It's just compilations of interviews with former players, a lot of former Negro Leagues players in those men's cases. They're just a joy to read, and they're just an incredible source of historical information, too. They'll tell you where people were this time, that time, who fought with whom, who didn't like whom, and what the game was like, and what it was like to travel and to play, and what America was like at the time. Those those oral interviews, as well as the newspapers, were really the key sources of information. And oral interviews are easily accessible and, and, as I say, really fun to read. What turned the tide for him in terms of his Hall of Fame induction? What what sort of shifted um, between when, you know, I think Ted Williams rightly called out the absence of Negro League players in the Hall um, through to Charleston's induction? Yeah, I'm not sure anything turned the tide for him. Once the hall started inducting players regularly and they were doing this one a year thing for a while, which wasn't making anybody happy. And Charleston was inducted during that time. I think Meg, he just, he was always on the list from the beginning. It's just that they were going to take care of, of some of the guys who were still, who were still alive. alive. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, but people will, it's, it's kind of unfortunate in the sense that people will assume that because he was a seventh Negro leaguer inducted, maybe that's sort of what his status or stature was in the black games indicative of it. And I don't, I don't think it was. So I know that you wanted to try to get at what he was like as a person, which is difficult to do long after the fact. And you succeeded in that to some extent. You were able to find some sources that shed a little light on his inner thoughts and personality. Mm -hmm. So what was the, the breakthrough there? And what did you learn about him, not just as a player, but a person? Yeah, sure. There are a couple of break. I mean, besides... The people I was able to talk to, including one of the women who played for him in 1954 on the Indianapolis Clowns, Mamie Johnson, who said he had a beautiful personality. That was her description of him. Besides that, uh, there were two things. One, there's a, a sports writer named John Shulian who wrote a great piece on Charleston for Sports Illustrated in, I think it was 2000, around that time. And uh, John John's the uh, creator of Xena Warrior Princess. So, uh, by the way, you should know that. He's, he's the creator <laughs> of Xena Warrior Princess and a great sports writer. And he had all his notes from interviews he had done with, with people like Double Duty Radcliffe and Buck O'Neill and, and others less well-known who knew Oscar. And he generously, I don't know how he still had them in a box he could find, but generously found them and shipped them to me. So it was like I was able to go back in time 18 years and interview people who are still alive. Now, that was great in terms of getting to the man uh, and the personality of Charleston, because 90% of those, those fellows were, were dead. And the other thing was, and this is an index, it's not, it's not promoted online, you, you just have to know about it. But from John, I think it was, I found out that Charleston's personal scrapbook and photo album were housed at the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. And that's like, my heart has never leapt more for joy than it did on the day that <laughs> I found that out from John because I was just gold for a biographer. So I was able to spend a day at the museum going through those materials, taking pictures of every precious page. And they tell you a lot about what Charleston thought was important. You know, For instance, every, every fight he was in, pretty much every fight he was in on the field, he had clippings of it in a scrapbook. I mean, it was like he just... Is as if he sort of thought it was comical, you know. <laughs> he was he had no no embarrassment about it. But also, like, who did he? Would, a lot of clippings about Lou Gehrig, a lot of clippings about Ty Cobb, a lot of clippings about Jimmy Fox and Dizzy Dean. 
kind of indicate maybe who he uh, respected uh, in the white game or who maybe was friends with him. I think he was friends with Jimmy Fox, actually. They both were in Philadelphia for a number of years. And then you could see that uh, a lot of clippings in Spanish from Cuban newspapers that he had translated in English on the margins or in a different piece of paper pasted right next to it. So you know that very early on he had taught himself Spanish not only well enough to speak it in Cuba, but to to write it, to translate, which says something about obviously his, his um, intelligence and intellectual capabilities. And then there were clippings about uh, civil rights and especially later on as you get into the 40s and 50s. Uh, newspaper clippings have to do with black history, black high society. So all that together, you were able to get a sense of what, what, what stuff meant something to him. Uh, and it turns out he was a very ambitious man. He was very, very socially ambitious. I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. He really, he wanted to sort of to rise on, on the ladder, so to speak. Um, married very intelligent and well-educated wives. Uh, uh, he, he cultivated those sorts of friendships. All of that you would never have known you know, just from the, maybe from the newspaper clippings, right? Or from the game accounts. So that is all this texture and, and, and interest to his life to know that he was somebody who really was doing his damnedest to rise out of poverty and to become, you know, to flourish, to become the sort of man he knew he could be. You've provided a good segue. We had the opportunity to talk to Bob Kendrick earlier this week, and it's clear that the, you know, the work that is being done, the scholarship that is being done around the Negro Leagues has, you know, really taken off, not just this year, but has been a growing body of historical scholarship. And I'm curious, you know, who else you you might think is sort of ripe for rediscovery from contemporary audiences who perhaps have, and obviously do have an overly narrow understanding of some of the best uh, black baseball players from uh, the last century. That's a great question. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned a few, you know, we have biographies, often multiple biographies of, at least it seems to me, I haven't done an actual study of this, but if you were to take like the top in terms of just wins above replacement, top, 30 or 40 or 50, you know, in the, in the white, the pre-integration game, I would bet we'd have biographies, if not multiple biographies of a majority of those, of those players. And we don't have nothing like that. Uh, and when it comes to Negro leagues players. So the answer to your question is almost everybody except yeah. for Satchel and except for Josh, like there's no biography of Buck Leonard. I don't think there's an autobiography, but it's co-written with, with um, someone whose name is escaping me, but there's no biography of him or of Pop Lloyd, whom Ben mentioned earlier, and certainly not of the great Cuban players, Cristobal Torriente and Martin Dehigo. Dehigo was the Shohei Otani of, of the Negro Leagues, along with uh, Bullet Rogan, great two-way player. Bullet Rogan's another one. Maybe the greatest two-way player of all time. Actually, almost certainly the greatest two-way player of all time, and there's no biography of him. So there's, it's actually a long list. That's a, that's a few and I think you can do this work now because we have the stats, because you can search the newspapers, because we do have archives of interviews everywhere. It's work that can be done. And then I would say there's um, like team histories. A great book on the Pittsburgh Crawfords needs to be written. A great book on the Grays. There is a book on the Grays, but there's work. There's room for another one. You know, those sorts of legendary teams, maybe even the not so legendary teams, the Chicago American Giants. There's not a great book on the Chicago American Giants, I don't think. And that's not to denigrate any of the work other people have done. It's just that it's like all the a lot of the spade work has been done, the research, bringing together game accounts and that sort of thing, comp compiling things. But the historical narrative stuff that's so common, you know, in the outside the, the Negro Leagues, 
in terms of baseball writing just hasn't been done. Did Charleston speak much publicly about how he felt about being in the Negro Leagues and being barred from the majors? Did he talk about being resentful yeah. of that, or was he sort of resigned to it? Because I, I would imagine that if you're constantly seeing yourself compared to the best players, <laughs> yeah. that must really rankle sure. even more than for others, you know, because you're reading about, oh, this guy's as good as Tris Speaker, this yeah. guy's as good as Ty Cobb, and well, then why? Am I not playing with them? So yeah. was was that something that was just a, a constant source of, of irritation for him? Or how did he handle that as far as we know? Yeah, as far as we know is the key key mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> phrase there, right? He didn't voice too much resentment. Um, there's sort of a change in the um, mentality of Negro Leagues players. You can see it happening as you read through um, uh, the newspapers of the time and then in sort of memoirs and stuff. Uh, that. The players of Oscar's generation and earlier obviously felt the injustice of being segregated uh, into their own league. But the prospect of desegregation was so distant that they weren't as angry about it as later players were, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. At least not visibly angry about it. Like Jackie Robinson and Henry Aaron, for instance, had very negative reactions to the Negro Leagues and their brief sojourns through them. It just seemed so second rate and and just obviously so unjust. This, this is especially after World War II when you've just fought right. another war side by side. With, with Charleston white. was in World War I, right? Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. So a different time. So mm-hmm. that's a little bit of answer to your question. One, one thing that stood out to me, I just wanted it was how, how little resentment uh, it, you know, that you expect that, that you find. So that's sort of just an interesting finding. But yeah, he did. But to answer your question, yeah, he did. He, he said things from time to time, not so much publicly, but there's one story where he's at a game. It's like it's in the early 30s, and there's a Yankee scout in the stands, and he calls him over and tells him how great he is, how much he, you know, he loved how badly he'd love to sign him. And Oscar says, "Why don't you?" And and he's like, "Well, we both know why." You know, there's a story about him sitting with Jimmy Fox one time after a game in Mexico, where Fox is a, actually issues an apology for the 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 black team that had gotten jobbed in the game against the white team, and. And Oscar, you know, thanks him for being so fair to Negro Leaguers, unlike, you know, some of the other white players. He, he gets involved, or he's at least name-checked. I don't know how highly involved he was with a push toward integration that was really being advanced by the Daily Worker, communist newspaper out of New York in the mm-hmm. late 30s. So he, he, didn't, he didn't protest against his name being associated with that, although I, I don't know how. I don't know how communist friendly he would have been. He was a Republican, like his friend Branch Rickey, and, and quite proud about it. And then, but later, after integration, he he talks about how much every player he sends up makes up in some part for him. And he and he starts giving interviews to the papers about what's he think about Satchel and his chances of making it. What's he think about Jackie and his chances of making it? And he you know he, he praises those guys you know highly and says they're going to be they're going to do great and they're, they're wonderful. And and there's a lot more still here in the Negro Leagues who, would, who, if given a chance, could really cut it. So, yeah, I, there, there are some. There, he, wasn't, um, it wasn't, he wasn't a, probably a crusader, you know, uh, but um, it wasn't that time yet, maybe. He was, he was out there publicly from time to time saying his piece.
So lastly, there are still things that we don't know and maybe can't know, despite your great work. I wonder if there's anything in particular that you wish you knew or, or could know. You know, I, I know that on Baseball Reference, he's still listed as six feet tall, and, and you wrote <laughs> in the book that he's probably more like 5'8 or 5'9. Or so yeah. maybe that's, you know, emblematic <laughs> of, of how little we know about certain aspects of things. Yeah. But as you were going through this, did you have like a, a most wanted list or, or right. areas where you were stymied? I'm just going to say this about the height. Uh, con- contra Joe uh, Posnanski in baseball reference. We actually do know he's between 5'8 and 5'9 because we have many uh-huh. pictures of him standing next to Josh Gibson and other people whose heights we know. Right. <laughs> so unless they're standing on something weird on the ground that we can't see. Yeah, he's not six feet tall. He was between 5'8 and 5'9. Yeah, I wish I knew more about his relationship with Branch Rickey. And that's the thing that stands out to me most. Mm. I would love to know more about exactly the role he played in this highly dramatic highly consequential, highly overdue attempt to integrate uh, Major League Baseball, the white Major Leagues, uh, mm-hmm. in 1945 and 46. I would love to know that. Now, other stuff, I would love, I wish that we had any audio or any video. As far as I <laughs> yeah. know, there's none. It's amazing to me. You know, he lived to be 1954, lived till 1954. Yeah. He did one audio, I know he did one radio interview, I, I'm sure there are others, but with WGN, right before the first Negro League's All-Star Game, the East-West Game in Chicago. He was on, and Willie Foster, another Hall of Famer, was on. And that was destroyed, that, that audio, I, I understand, from Larry mm. Ty. It uh, was destroyed in a fire or something. Mm. So somewhere, people keep telling me, oh, somewhere in some attic, some archive, there's right. audio or video. Well, please come forward <laughs> if you have it, <laughs> yeah. if you want to see it. All right. Well, you can find Jeremy on Twitter at Jeremy Beer, and we will link to where you can find the book, Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Support the University of Nebraska Press and get yourself a great biography. Jeremy, thank you for writing it and thank you for talking to us about it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. We will be back in just a moment to talk to Dr. Emily Rudder about the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, Soul of the Game, and other cinematic and literary representations of black baseball. We are joined now by Emily Ruth Rutter. She is an associate professor of English and the assistant director of African American Studies at Ball State University. She is also the author of a couple of books, including Invisible Ball of Dreams, Literary Representations of Baseball Behind the Color Line. She is working on a third book now called Black Celebrity, Contemporary Representations of Postbellum Athletes and Artists. Emily, thank you very much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask before we get into specific movies and works, what drew you to baseball when you were looking at literary representations? I know you've also written about blues and and other areas and celebrity too, but why did you want to explore the history of representations of baseball in particular? 
Well, that's a good question. I guess I grew up in kind of a baseball family. My dad was a player just on like a local league and he took us to a lot of minor league games. Grew up in North Carolina, so we didn't have a major league team, but he was he grew up in Chicago, so he was a Cubs fan, so we'd go see this uh single A team, the Winston-Salem Spirits. Um, no, They no longer exist, uh, but uh, we also saw many Durham Bulls games. That might be a team people are more familiar with, but yes. in any case, so I kind of grew up with baseball, and then I'd say that when I was when I was getting my PhD and writing my dissertation, actually, you know, working on these represent- representations of blues musicians, I was also going to a lot of baseball games, a lot of Pirates games, and I was thinking about kind of representations of underdocumented or even sometimes undocumented black cultural history. And uh, so that that applies to the blues, but it also made me start thinking about black baseball. And Pittsburgh is a city that actually really celebrates its black baseball history, you know, Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I guess I got really interested in the topic then. And this book kind of grew out of uh, the blues book in that way, because they're both kind of about, again, that sort of like, how does literature intervene in or grapple with these histories that weren't represented well at the time mm-hmm. and their kind of legacies today. When we wanted to do this week of episodes on the Negro Leagues, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the history of movies or, or representations of the Negro Leagues. And it is not a very long list of it's true. <laughs> non-documentary movies, which is sort of striking and, and I guess perhaps not surprising. I know I hear often that it's difficult to get any kind of baseball movie made, although many baseball movies have been made. And <laughs> one would imagine that making a movie about black baseball that was probably a a harder sell for much of cinematic history. And so there's just not a lot to go on there. And and people know 42, of course, because it's fairly recent, but there's not all that much Negro Leagues baseball Mm -hmm. in that movie because it's about Jackie Robinson and it's about integration. And so when you start looking for earlier examples, there are really only a couple there. There is a a 1950 movie called The Jackie Robinson Story. Right. Again, that is very Jackie Robinson-centric, as the title suggests. And So really, that just leaves a couple, which are the Bingle Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings from 1976. And that was a feature film released in theaters. And Soul of the Game, a 1996 cable movie, an HBO movie. And that's kind of it, I guess. So we have uh, just watched those two films, Meg and I have, for the first time. And we have both seen many baseball movies, and there's sort of a, a baseball movie pantheon, and we've talked about many of those movies on the show, whether it's Field of Dreams or or Bull Durham or uh, A League of Their Own, etc. But you don't usually see these two movies included on mm-hmm. that pantheon, and I don't know whether on their own merits they necessarily measure up to the very best of the baseball movies, but they certainly compare, I think, to me at least, with some movies of sort of similar quality that are more famous. I guess we can all just kind of talk about what we think about them and and their flaws and and where they succeed. But do you have any context to add about kind of the making of these movies 
and particularly for a movie about the Negro Leagues and, and barnstorming to come around in the 70s. That's somewhat notable, I would think. And, and just to set these up a little bit, Bingo Long, which stars Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones in pre-Star Wars roles, as well as Richard Pryor in a smaller role. And it sort of features fictionalized versions of real Negro Leagues characters. So there is sort of a, a Satchel Page equivalent and and a Josh Gibson equivalent and a Jackie Robinson equivalent, but not the real people. And they're on a barnstorming tour and it's a comedy. And we can talk about whether it really succeeds as a comedy, but <laughs> it's sort of lighthearted and, and fictionalized, whereas Soul of the Game features those same characters, but the real versions of them, or, well, <laughs> certainly fictionalized <laughs> versions of them in, in some ways, but they are meant to be the real historical figures of Robinson and Gibson and Page and Branch Rickey, etc. It's about who's going to get chosen, which one of them is going to be the first player to break the color barrier, and it's more of a biopic-style movie. So... Do you have any kind of context to, to offer about how these movies were made or, or what influences they had or what influence they had on others? Well, I guess I would put Bingo Long in the context of, well, first of all, it was a filmic adaptation. So it's mm -hmm. based on a novel by William Brashler, which was published in 1973. And um, that's actually really the first novel that's about the Negro Leagues, mm -hmm. which is also kind of surprising. And William Brashler is a white guy who, you know, it you know talks about in the the preface to the book that he really didn't know that much about the Negro Leagues before he started doing research for the book. So I guess that's notable in the sense that you know it's sort of not necessarily coming out of like a a sort of black power tradition which like it's sort of it you know the movie itself is is or the the novel and then later the film does sort of you you could argue it sort of comes out of an era of civil rights and black power but the the book and the narrative is written by somebody who you know, admit it admits that he wasn't really that engaged <laughs> with those movements. So I think that's helpful context. And I also think, you know, some other things to consider there are that, you know, it's produced by uh, executive producers at Barry Gordy. So it's sort of, um, and also, you know, it comes out during the era of black exploitation. So, so, and Billy Dee Williams had just been in Lady Sings the Blues, I believe. So, so there's, there's also a sort of like, what kind of audience is this film for? And I actually think the, the film itself is a little bit confused about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I should also note that while Barry Gordy is the executive producer, you know, the, the director is also John Badham is white. So you have, you know, a white writer, white director, but you have a film that's sort of trying to situate itself and and as you said, a comedy, but also in this sort of like recuperation of black cultural history and capitalizing on the success of some black exploitation films. So yeah, so there's there's it's very much of a moment, I think. And not to go on too long, but it also might be helpful to note that the players you know, that, that Negro League players were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, their response to this film was, I think, on the whole negative. You know, they were they were fairly critical. I know Satchel Paige took issue with it. Uh, and a friend of mine who I interviewed in Indianapolis, Ira McKnight, who played on the Kansas City Monarchs, he passed away a couple of years ago. But in our conversations, he was also very critical of the film. So I don't think that Negro Leagues 
players actually (laughs) appreciated this film very much. So I'll just put that out there as like (laughs) potentially helpful context. Yeah, I think I was going to ask you, one of the things that I found frustrating about the decision to sort of situate this within the realm of comedy was, well, there are like a lot of issues that, <laughs> that arose from that. But I think that that one of them was that it does not appear to be, because it has not sort of staked a particular and decisive viewpoint on the goings-on of this era, it doesn't seem like a film that is sort of self-aware enough to be attempting this degree of difficulty in its comedy. Mm -hmm. It is not clear exactly who this film is for and if the audience is supposed to be laughing along at some of the moments that seem to try to take the tension out of the very real risk and racism that black players of the time faced or if we're supposed to be cringing along. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how, I think probably the most relevant perspective here is that of actual Negro Leagues players, But I'm also curious how, if you know how that comedy was sort of received at the time, was this thought to be successful both as, I guess, as a film and then as a film about the Negro Leagues? I think it had mixed reviews. I mean, like I said, I think the black baseball world was fairly critical and it hasn't aged well. I should also say that (laughs) (laughs) the people who Negro Leagues historians, you know, and people just in that world are still very critical of it. So, so it, I, th- I think it wasn't well received by them at the time, and it hasn't hasn't been you know received well since. You know, I think I think sort of film critics there were mixed reviews. I mean, I think it did receive some positive reviews. I, I think Roger Ebert was critical of it. You know, so I think it, it was it was kind of a mixed bag. You know, I I don't I don't think I th- actually think it's a film that seems almost worse now than it probably did then. I mean, there's, you know, Richard Pryor and his, the the kind of anti-Native American, you know, the kind of stereotypes and caricatures of Native Americans or even Latinos, you know, so there, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, the, the portrait, the portraits of women are terrible. So there, there's all kinds of things that might have even been more tolerated in the late 60s that, that, you know, just wouldn't be now. So in addition to its kind of, drawbacks in terms of recuperating a story of the Negro Leagues, it also just has a number of other flaws in terms of its kind of perpetuation of stereotypes. Right. And yeah, there are times in the movie, like, you know, there's a, a character who is I supposed to be, I, I guess, an equivalent of F.A. Manley, mm-hmm. the Bertha owner, DeWitt, yeah. yeah, female owner of a Negro Leagues team. And she is in this movie, except that she does occasionally make some good points and, and she seems to be kind of more clear-eyed than some of the, the male owners in the league. But also she is just constantly the butt of jokes Absolutely. about her, her figure and she's sleeping with the players and it's just, you know, constant demeaning comments about mm-hmm. her appearance and, and behavior. So that just totally undercuts the, the portrayal of her. And there's a lot like that, but there's also, you know, the the movie itself, the story essentially is that these players are being exploited by owners and and black owners who they compare to like masters and and a plantation, which is kind of interesting that they're seen as the oppressors in this movie. And it's actually not so far afield from what's going on in baseball right now, because it's that the, the owners are kind of asking the players to accept the risk of playing. So someone gets hurt and the owner ducks everyone's pay to pay for this player's medical treatment. Losing him don't affect our chances for the pennant much. 
Now, seeing as I's family live all the way down in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm docking each of you a day's pay to cover his fare. Five dollars each? Sally, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, we ain't the owner of the team. You are. I mean, it ain't right for you to be coming to the players to take care of something you're supposed to be taking care of. Docking you double long. Five dollars covers fair. Five dollars for fomenting dissension on my team. Man, I ain't fomenting nothing. I'm just voicing my opinion. Around me, you ain't got no opinion. So they set off on their own and, and they form this barnstorming team. And there's almost like this revolutionary aspect to it, right? And W.E.B. Du Bois is cited. It's like, let's take back the means of production. Yeah, and it's seize kind of, the means of production. <laughs> right. It's it's sort of empowering in a way. Although if this is supposed to be Satchel Page, I don't know that it is actually true to what his character was really like, that he was so selfless in the way that Billy D. Williams' right. character is. But they do encounter prejudice and, and racism, but it's often just kind of played for like a madcap sort of mm-hmm. screwball comedy. So, you know, they'll steal a car and, and these white people are chasing them and you start to fear for them. But then it's just like this funny music is playing and it's just a, a montage and it's like, oh, OK, there's no real danger here, it seems to be saying, even though, of course, there was and, and would have been at the time. So you mentioned Roger Ebert's review and he wrote about how it was supposed to be this crossover film and appeal to everyone but he said as I sat through it I almost began to feel like a member of one of the all-stars first white audiences laughing at the cut-up antics of the players but never seeing the hurt underneath it's sort of what you were saying about you know I guess it's difficult to make a comedy about this in that it's not that funny a, a situation but they do kind of go back and forth between trying to acknowledge what was happening, but then also sort of minimizing it and playing it for laughs. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the white characters are so flat and cartoonish, really, right? And, and their, and their supremacist views and that, that it's, it's hard to actually see white supremacy as, I mean, there are moments when it's sort of represented as structural, you know, like they're at the beginning of the film, they make this uh, parallel between, you know, Nazi Germany. The, I mean, the film is supposed to be taking place in 39, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so, you know, it begins with the sort of montage of like, you know, Hitler's march across Europe. And then there's that moment in which the players are picking potatoes mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, it's so you know it's, it could be this moment to really think about sharecropping in the 1930s and to think about fascism at home you know there's this sort of broadside that says like you know america like the you know the highest standard of living in the world or something and then you see this like you know row of african americans waiting in this line to be paid like two dollars a day so that there's like these sort of attempts these gestures towards structural inequities but as you're saying like when those are introduced they're sort of that opportunity is like almost immediately forfeited in the service of comedy so like something really like even when they're like picking those potatoes like then it becomes this kind of song and dance routine (laughs) and it's it's just so so they're you know and and that's where the question of like what is this film really what is the aim of the film that question really comes up because you know it doesn't want to really address the ways in which those inequities were structuring American society, then it doesn't want to really address the emotional and psychological dimensions of that. And I think in part, because it doesn't want to make the parallels to 
the late seventies, like, you know, that it, cause you know, I think this film and, you know, when we get to soul of the game, we can think about this too, that like there, there's a, a kind of teleological narrative, right. And, and where, you know, the, the film like also wants to end on a positive note. And so you kind of, you know, it, the film doesn't allow you to linger too long, not only about the injustices of the past, but also the ways in which they, you know, might be, impinging or on or structuring the present i think another thing that i didn't like about this movie i just really did not i did not care for it uh, it's gonna continue to be clear <laughs> completely in, fair in in my questions i think another par- aspect of it and i'm curious how we might situate this in other portrayals of not only the negro leagues but also black baseball more generally and i i can't tell if part of this is a function of the decision to make this sort of a broad comedy or to portray these players as clear fictionalizations. They are based in some part on real people, but they are not actual people who played in uh, in the Negro Leagues, is that it does not seem to do much service to the great quality of play that was actually present mm-hmm, in those leagues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because it has them barnstorming against white squads that are often quite poor. And then the central conflict is around the players that have sort of remained on the black baseball squads versus the all-stars. We don't really get an appreciation for how skilled actual Negro League players were and how the level of competition might have compared to the majors or anything like that. So I'm curious, not just with respect to this film, but is is there are there better examples, I guess I should say, <laughs> of um, films that actually sell celebrated the achievements of those players and and how was that how did that sort of deficit when it comes to this film perhaps play into the reaction of actual negro league players who saw it and thought this is this is clearly not for us yeah if i could piggyback on that there's a quote in the movie by leon carter the james earl jones josh gibson-esque character who says we're a ball club not a circus exactly but but then there are a lot of circus-like atmospheres to their games which you know i guess was true with barnstorming at times but also true that you you don't get really a complete picture of how great they were yeah and i mean like just to add a little more context to that i mean the the movie is actually fairly faithful to the book you know and so the book is also like all of the criticisms we're making of the film we could also make of the book so like the book is is also pretty comedic and does sort of it does do more in terms of celebrating the athleticism of the players but it definitely sort of has a lot of questionable and sort of minstrel-esque kinds of representations. So so just as sort of further context for that, I mean, so part of the problem with this film, I think, is that the book that it's based on also is highly problematic. But I, I think the film that I look to, even though it doesn't have any actual like playing of baseball in it, besides some swinging, <laughs> is Fences. You know, I think Denzel Washington's adaptation of Fences is, and Fences arguably the play by August Wilson is, you know, arguably the, in my mind, you know, I don't know if I want to say best, but one of the best, right, representations of kind of the emotional archive of black baseball. And I think that um, the filmic adaptation, I think also um, is incredible in terms of what it really gets into in terms of the stories that the protagonist, Troy Maxson, is telling about the Negro Leagues. You know, so you really get a sense of, you know, 
how meaningful it would have been to hit a home run off a satchel page, right? Or what it was like to play alongside Josh Gibson. And so I, I do think that even though, again, you don't see people playing the game of baseball <laughs> in fences, I think that film does a much better job of really digging into kind of excavating all of the complexities of black baseball, which was, you know, I think in a lot of ways, just this this paradoxical institution, right? It was a source of great cultural pride and also great, you know, social pain. So, you know, an individual pain. So I think, I think that that film captures all of those complexities, um, including the kind of heroicism of the players, um, much better than Bingo Long or Soul of the Game for that matter. Yeah, and we were talking about how this hasn't aged very well, and that's true of a lot of baseball movies. If you yeah. actually go back and watch, say, Bad News Bears, which came out the mm-hmm. same year, there are a lot of kind of cringy or uncomfortable moments in that, or even something like The Sandlot in some ways. And much as I love it, Major League is a little like that too. I think we remember those movies fondly, maybe because of nostalgia or because they were part of people's childhoods. And it just seems like Bingo Lung is not really a movie that gets cited as Mm -hmm. often and so maybe like I hadn't seen it Meg hadn't seen it and so we don't remember it through some sort of lens of oh we saw it when we were 10 and we thought it was a lot of fun at that time and so we're only watching it now I don't know why it is that it didn't really make the leap to that list of you know if you look up a list of baseball movies sometimes you'll see it but it's definitely not a given and, and you'll certainly see things like Bad News Bears or The Sandlot or Eight men out, let's say, which takes a lot of historical liberties too. And I don't say that anyone has to go see it or you definitely should go see it because of all the problems we've been talking about. But just in terms of historical significance and the fact that it was groundbreaking in a way in that there weren't really a lot of precedents for a movie like this, even though it wasn't perhaps the, the best version of this movie that they could have made. But between that and just between the the peak Billy D. Williams, that's mm-hmm. that's enough for me to kind of recommend it, even just as sort of a historical relic, I, I guess. And and James Earl Jones, who I think was about forty five at the time, and, and <laughs> right. looks it. <laughs> so. I, I, I believe that James Earl Jones said somewhere that he he doesn't even like baseball, which is hilarious because of course he's he's right. in this and he's also in Field of Dreams. But yeah, I mean, I I think that. Another the, another reason that potentially, I mean, we just pure speculation, that the film hasn't aged well or that it's not on those lists of kind of the greatest baseball films is because it kind of goes back to what Meg was saying about audience, like who is this for? And in a lot of ways, it's because, it, you know, again, in my experience talking to historians and the the play, former players or um, the, the kind of sons and daughters or grandchildren of former players, it wasn't received well among them, right? So like, let's say like Black Americans in, in who knew something about the world of black baseball wasn't received well among that group. So I'm not sure like what group would have that kind of like nostalgia for it. And it doesn't explain, it doesn't work pedagogically. So it doesn't explain why we should care about black baseball. <laughs> and that, that, you know, I, and I think that part of that goes back to that sort of the, it's progressive reading of history because it ends you know, with Esquire Joe, who's this ridiculous, you know, embodiment, supposedly the embodiment of, the, of Jackie Robinson, the Jackie Robinson persona. 
And, and you know, that character is, is, you know, alongside the Effa Manley persona is, is highly offensive because it re- doesn't resemble Robinson at all. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the film, you know, he's, he's the chosen one. So he's chosen to go into the majors. And so it kind of, and it, again, it ends on this happy note. So it kind of leaves the viewer with the idea that like black baseball wasn't really that important after all, or that it's a sort of natural progression. Like, you know, this was segregation. It kind of, it, you know, it was terrible, but it kind of had to happen in order to lead to this, you know, more progressive future. And so it, it, it doesn't leave us with enough kind of knowledge about why black baseball is important and what the lingering kind of problematic issues are in the way that baseball integration happened to get us to care about seeing it for the first time or seeing it again. I just, you know, I'm just not sure which audience is supposed to kind of hang on to it. Yeah. When, when your Jackie Robinson stand in is like a, you know, a country bumpkin sort of plucked from obscurity, you're just, it feels like they've lost the thread um, pretty decisively. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, the other movie that we wanted to discuss, Soul of the Game, does a better job of sort of making obvious both the, the baseball skill and the stakes that players playing in the Negro Leagues were facing and and the skill that they possessed. It is, I think, perhaps unsurprisingly, when contrasted with Bingo Long, a film directed by a black director mm-hmm. um, and has a more sort of clear-eyed understanding of, or at least uh, acknowledgement of racism within this era and sort of does not strike quite as optimistic a note going forward. But I'm curious, you know, what your take on Soul of the Game is in terms of how successful it is at navigating um, that balance between acknowledging the the skill that these players had and also the historical moment in which they found themselves and were embarking on. Yeah, I think this film, it it didn't reach as wide of an audience, which is kind of unfortunate. I mean, because it was, you know, made for HBO. But I think this film does a better job just sort of speaking to what you were just suggesting, like it, it is more uh, pedagogically valuable, right? Like it it begins and ends with historical information. I think it does give us a kind of counter narrative to uh, whitewash baseball lore. You know, it, it, it really does impress upon the viewer, you know, that Gibson and Page were stellar athletes, for example. And I mean, it also raises some really interesting questions about the kind of respectability politics that went into, you know, Branch Rickey kind of selecting Robinson over other players, for example. That's a that's a central source of tension within the film. And I think those are really important questions. So I I appreciate that it goes there. I think maybe some of the drawbacks of Soul of the Game... I think actually the character of Gibson is is really interesting because, and I don't know if this was something that y'all were picking up on, but I mean, it, it's like whenever he's not playing baseball, he he's he's like in either enraged or just completely inebriated seeming. And I realize that they're trying to portray him as having, you know, suffering from a brain tumor and all those things. But I feel like he ends up sort of looking like, buffoonish or something when he's not on the field and so it's it's sort of hard to reconcile this character on and off the field Uh, so that would be one of my criticisms of of the film again I think this has a lot of um, items kind of in the merits column but one of the the drawbacks I think would be the portrayal of Gibson and I also think that you know it does it again is it interestingly 
fabricates this kind of mentorship, right? Where Satchel Paige mentors Robinson Mm -hmm. and they have this like really like close relationship and it's sort of again this holy trinity you know it's it's satch and and josh and and robinson and it's sort of like but that (laughs) that wasn't real and so it's interesting that both films uh, replicate that and but soul of the game really leans into that and so that would be just in terms of like accuracy i guess that would be a drawback because i think if you didn't do further reading or, you know, you, you didn't sort of do any of your own investigation that you, you would walk away with that narrative, which might be, you know, it would be uh, misleading in terms of how, you know, the, those players and again, the kind of um, questions that integration raises. Yeah. I found a contemporary article when, when this movie came out and a biographer of some of these players was weighing in about all the inaccuracies and just counting the, the number of factual mistakes or, or liberties that this movie took. And even just the fact that they're all teammates in this mm-hmm. movie, which mm-hmm. they weren't at, at that time. Gibson wasn't even on the team with the other two. And it does sort of exaggerate their relationship and, and their friendship and all of that. And that's not unusual for, for any Hollywood movie, really. But do you find that that is often the case in these literary representations or film versions of the Negro Leagues and and Black Baseball? Is there just sort of a simplification? Like, I think I read an HBO spokesperson quoted in that same critical article who said it's a metaphor, you know, and and that it was just a way for them to sort of show the impact that this had on these players and and kind of tie all of these characters together in a, a neat little TV movie, I guess, that sort of simplifies it for the audience and has all of these major your figures in it, even if it's not in the actual context that they were. Is that very common or, or are there adaptations or books or stories that are quite accurate, even though they're fictionalized? Yeah, that's a good question. There are not, as we were talking about, there aren't a lot of fictional dramatizations of Black Baseball or the Negro Leagues, but there are a fair number of novels, you know, a few plays, lots of poetry, a ton of children's books. And I'd say that especially since kind of the era of Soul of the Game, actually, since the 90s, with, again, so much more research done about the Negro Leagues, right? There's also been a proliferation of nonfiction books. And so with more evidence available, I would say that they're they're mostly pretty accurate. And I think also more contemporary works, when when they're taking that kind of poetic license, they foreground that they're doing it. So, you know, even in something like Fences, I don't think we're led to believe that all of Troy Maxson's kind of tall tales about his feats within black baseball are true but you know so it's part of the narrative but it's like the 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 mythology you know that he's the the kind of fables that he's he's spinning or weaving are are that that that's we're in on the know right Mm -hmm. um and and i would say that that's generally true kind of in the postmodern black baseball fiction and poetry era, we'll call it, when authors are kind of taking those liberties, they usually do foreground that they're doing so. And I'd say when when authors are sort of aiming for realism, they've done their research. So generally speaking, I'd say Black baseball literature, you know, over the last few decades is actually quite accurate, you know, so so I don't think it actually falls into these traps nearly as much as these films. 
Are you aware of any new appetite for film representations of Black baseball and Negro Leagues baseball? Because I think that part of, you know, if we're still, and I don't say this as if it is an unimportant story, but if if Hollywood's preoccupation seems to be telling Jackie Robinson's story very frequently, I guess it's not surprising that there is some flattening of the historical record because those films are meant to have sort of broad appeal and they are focused they are focused on a story that has been so heavily mythologized that audiences sort of fill in uh, gaps and they do so with knowledge that they already have or they they think they have and think is accurate. Is there appetite for for new stories and new sort of representations on film so that there might be a broadening of our understanding? Um, or the general public and general baseball fans' understanding of this era of American sport? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there might be. I mean, I haven't read or heard anything about a particular film in the works or a series or anything, but I definitely think the appetite is there. I mean, I think that even something like 42 falls into the same kind of trap. And I think viewers recognized at the time, which is sort of like, you know, that, I mean, it's remarkable how these films will end with this kind of affirmation of a, you know, progressive future, full stop, (laughs) you know, and, and, and I think, and, you know, and it's very complicated, but I think a lot of the literature raises questions, you know, like Amiri Baraka writes really movingly about this, you know, Gloria Naylor, the novelist, and, and again, August Wilson, they're, they write about like, what are the costs of, what were the costs of integration? Like on whose terms did right. integrate, right? And so those are really live questions, I think, and ones that haven't been adequately addressed by Hollywood film, which is like no big surprise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think there is an appetite. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't even know that I would have said that, you know, a few years ago, but I just look at the ways in which athletes themselves right now are, you know, are, are recognizing the kind of cultural capital that they have. And I think that, that athletes and their fans, you know, are going to kind of demand that these stories get told. And I think the the thing about the Negro Leagues is that a lot of people just don't know about it, right? And I mean, I think like this 100-year anniversary, lots of people are are talking about it. And some people are probably learning about the Negro Leagues for the first time. And and it is one of those things. It's why there are so many children's books about the Negro Leagues, because it's a cultural phenomenon. It's an era that needs to continuously be told to each you know subsequent generation. So I do think that there's there's an appetite for it. And we'll see you know, who decides to propose something that that's worthy of the cause. I, I, you know, I know that even with Denzel's adaptation of Wilson's play, like that took almost 30 years to be adapted into a film. Right. So like, and it's so beautiful. I mean, again, like I, I really, I would highly recommend that film. And I think it was like worth the wait, even though it was, it was decades, but it's, it's like, it's a very complicated topic and it needs somebody who can be really sensitive to all of these concerns. And, you know, there are so many great researchers out there doing work on the Negro Leagues, a lot of, I mean, there are very few living players at this point. So, you know, it would also be great to like do this now when the appetite is there. Some of the players are still living and, you know, I think the audiences are ready for the kind of complicated story that needs to be told. 
I did appreciate some of the somewhat complex portrayals of some of these characters in Soul of the Game. So you have Paige, who is not just a purely heroic figure. And, and of course, he's portrayed by Delroy Lindo, who is mm-hmm. always great. And mm-hmm. then Branch Rickey in this movie, it's not him just acting selflessly because he believes in breaking the color line. It's not really clear in the movie why he's doing this. Or <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not necessarily totally clear in real life either. But in the movie, he clearly has multiple motives motivations for doing this and mm-hmm. also there's a scene that shows him talking to the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs who is mm-hmm. accusing him of stealing his players and that's something that happened too so mm-hmm. it doesn't make him look like this saintly person and what baseball action there is in the movie is not bad I think Ernie Banks's son worked as a consultant on the baseball scenes there's again good acting from Lindo and, and Blair Underwood as Robinson and Michael T. Williamson who's also in Fences mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. and He's I game. like that but it does sort of have that kind of biopic like overly symbolic images and it ends actually both of these movies kind of culminate in the big game which is just Mm -hmm. a a staple of almost every baseball movie there has to be a big game at the end although in Soul of the Game it it doesn't really take place but there's this framing device of like a young Willie Mays who meets Gibson and, and Paige and as a kid and then he shakes their hand and it's this passing of the torch and then at the beginning and end of the movie they show Willie Mays as a major leaguer and he's being asked about the story of these players and their significance and it's just a little hokey I guess mm-hmm. but it certainly does a, a more respectful job of just about everything than Bingo Long and there is one really affecting scene where Paige's mistress is talking to this young white woman and they're really bonding and they're talking about hairstyles and she's giving the woman advice on oh you should put your hair up and they just seem very friendly and it's kind of a casual conversation and then she says by the way can I use your bathroom and the woman says oh no my daddy won't let you in the house except she doesn't say you she uses the n-word and Paige's companion's face falls and suddenly the barriers are up again unfortunately it's pretty hard to find it's not really streaming anywhere, and Bingo Lung, I don't think, is streaming for free anywhere, but fortunately, someone has uploaded both of these movies to YouTube, so yeah, exactly. you, yeah, <laughs> you can yeah. go watch them there. <laughs> not in the highest quality, but, but they're there, at least. So... Are there any other formative, foundational, influential works that you would want to mention? I guess not really so much in movies, but writing and and books and stories, particularly fiction, but not necessarily fiction. And have there been any works produced by the players or, or the people who were involved in the Negro Leagues? Because I know that there were a lot of very highly educated, I think there were more Negro Leagues players with college degrees mm-hmm. as a percentage, at least than in the majors at, at the time, uh, just because major league players would get plucked out early and, and young. And so I, I wonder whether there are any first-person accounts that are sort of literary or whether that work has all been done by others. Well, yeah, I have a I have a number of recommendations. Also, just to circle back for a second, I mean, and I, I don't know if I have an answer to this question exactly, but I mean, one both of the films that we've been talking about are are really focused on male camaraderie, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, and and so one of the things that I think gets somewhat lost is that this was a professional job, <laughs> yeah. right? And and so like the films 
sort of get at that, but they don't quite, they, 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 it's sort of the, the men seem to be driven by their sort of affection for one another. And again, that sense of camaraderie and community rather than that this was a better job than, you know, a lot of other jobs available to black men in a Jim Crow America. And so I do think that that is another kind of drawback of the films that, you know, it is, is important to point out. But in terms of other representations, I mean, there aren't a lot of stellar novels about black baseball, but I would say that Again, Fences, I would recommend Fences, August Wilson's play Fences. Even if you don't love reading plays, I think you will love this play. And a lot of these children's books that have just been published in the last decade or so are fantastic. Kadir Nelson, who is also a famous painter and does beautiful portraits of Negro Leagues players and and all kinds of other contemporary Black figures. He has a book called We Are the Ship that has his illustrations and um, text, and that's very well researched and just a, a lovely book, and I think for all ages. Carol Boston Weatherford also has a great book. She's a poet. It's a children's book, but again, I think it's also for adults, and it's called A Negro League Scrapbook. Again, very well researched, and each page has a little poem you know, about various aspects of the Negro Leagues, and one of the really great things about that book is that she celebrates the three women who played on the Indianapolis clowns. And so a lot, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the gender line, right, was broken in Negro Leagues, uh, in the Negro Leagues, um, and still obviously has not been been broken in the major leagues. And I guess one other recommendation is uh, my dear friend E. Ethelbert Miller's If God Invented Baseball, which is just a fantastic poetry collection came out just a couple of years ago in 2018. And I think even if you, you know, are, are not a poetry aficionado, that book will sort of take you through the arc of his life in a way. And also it's sort of the arc of his life via baseball. <laughs> and it's really beautiful. There's moments of black baseball, you know, sort of before the color line and after and, and up into the present. So I would definitely recommend that. And I know I shared this with you all already, but I have a kind of an online bibliography of works about black baseball. So if you just Google black baseball lit, you will find a ton of resources about black baseball. And there's also a Twitter at like black baseball lit. So you can tweet at me with anything that you want to, if you want recommendations or whatnot. Yeah, I will link to all of that. And there was a, a play off Broadway, Tony Stone. Oh, absolutely. Recently, right. And thanks for that reminder. Yeah, I will uh, I'll link to that too. I, I haven't gotten to see it, unfortunately, but I, I think it's maybe traveling or, or it's been in other areas too. Yeah. So. And there, for a while there, you for like a week, you were able to stream it like they were you know, it was a, that that sort of liminal time when things were still being staged, but you could stream them anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it will come back to us. Um, I've heard wonderful things and I haven't been able to see it yet. All right. Well, we really appreciate your work on the subject and we will link to all of it. And thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you all. Okay, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our guests. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount and get yourself access to some perks. Johnny Winjo, Dan Osterhout, 
Brandon Lee, John Armstrong, and Alex Nazer. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, despite finding out that he needs a root canal. And we will be back with one more episode on the Negro Leagues a little later this week. Talk to you then. They're coming out with the movie version of my life based on the novel that shouldn't have been written either. I called them up and asked to meet the director to see who would play me. And he said, you talked about actors but thought instead that playing yourself might lend some crap. Today we have two guests. So first we will talk to Seth Beer. Or uh, first, <laughs> Ron Beer. <laughs> uh, okay. He's also a baseball beer yep. person, but wrong one. All right.